More than 100 days into the war on Gaza, the Israeli media space is reeling over the implications of the court case in The Hague and the role journalists have played in a war of vengeance. A broadcast network in Australia has been accused of caving in to the pro-Israel lobby and firing one of its journalists. Plus, Finland tries to fortify future generations against misinformation, fake news. Since South Africa brought its genocide case against Israel to the International Court of Justice last week, the reaction from the Israeli news media has been incredulous. Some pundits have been mocking the case. Others have criticized Israeli officials, not for the mass slaughter in Gaza, but for their candor, including some blood-curdling statements that South Africa has offered as proof of genocidal intent. The Israeli government is taking the prospect of losing this case seriously. Prime Minister Netanyahu says he will not allow an ICJ ruling or anything else to stop the bombing of Gaza. Since October 7th, more than 24,000 Palestinians have been killed, and according to Gaza's health ministry, at least 10,000 children. Hundreds of thousands more are now going hungry, staring a famine in the face. Should the ICJ's ruling go against Israel, the implications will extend well beyond the Middle East, all the way to the U.S., where Israel's lead sponsor will be expected to honor its obligations under the Genocide Convention. Israel's war on Gaza is more than 100 days old, and two days after the court hearings in The Hague, Benjamin Netanyahu was at his most defiant. Read between the lines, though, and that doesn't sound like a prime minister who thinks the International Court of Justice's ruling is going to go Israel's way. His statement following the, the hearing was for the Israeli audience uh, to say that the war is not over, and especially because of right-wing pressure from the extremists in Netanyahu government that are unsatisfied that they're moving to maybe the final stage of the war. It was also aimed in significant part at the Palestinians. If you think that anyone has the power to stop us raining down high explosives on the Gaza Strip, think again, because we issue the orders and no one will be able to assist you. And very much to the international community, you know, don't think of stopping us. Netanyahu said the opposite two days before. He said that Israel does not have any intention to stay forever in Gaza. Israel has no intention of permanently occupying Gaza or displacing its civilian population. So it was a combination of being mixed up, embarrassed, and not knowing exactly what to do with the political system and the media. They were all shocked from this whole procedure because it came so rapidly out of the blue sky. Israel is used to long, long processes which never even start, not to say never end. And here, all of a sudden, Israel faced uh, a situation which she never faced before. Much of the information war Israel's been fighting since October 7th has been based in its news studios. Journalists in those studios then covered the ICJ hearings live. In this case, alongside the deputy speaker of the Knesset, whose name came up at the hearings as evidence of Israeli officials speaking with genocidal intent. 
During the ICJ hearing on Channel 13, one of the guests uh, was uh, Parliament member Nisim Vaturi, who said that uh, all Gaza should be burned down. And this statement was quoted in the ICJ. And the host asked him about the damage it caused. And he started to talk about uh, what happened on October 7, kind of preaching to them about the horrific uh, attacks against Israel. And the host told him that we already reported that, we're asking you something else. And when he continued, he, they asked him to leave. That kind of pushback is highly unusual. Israelis haven't seen much of it on their news channels. In fact, some of the genocidal statements raised at the ICJ were originally delivered from those news studios. Not just by politicians or commentators. Some of it came straight from the anchor chair. Journalists have been among the prominent Israelis driving the propaganda. They are in no position now to point the finger in a blame game. From the Israeli media, there are basically two themes. Uh, the first theme is outrage along the lines of how dare they. Um, we're the ones who are the victims of uh, genocide here. Not only during the 1940s, but also on October 7th. So how dare they accuse us of genocide? We're only defending ourselves. And the second one is basically a standing ovation for what is um, uh, presented as the phenomenal job Israel's legal team did in rebutting South Africa. How did we get to this? We are after three months of war in Gaza in which the Israeli media, almost all of them, totally betrayed its professional mission. You don't see the people of Gaza. You don't see the starvation, you don't see the dying children on, on floors of hospitals, the bombarding. You just see vague images. So Israelis came to this session of the court with a feeling that uh, everything went uh, right in the war. Outside of Israel, media watchers criticize the UK's most watched news channels, BBC and Sky, for failing to provide live coverage of the first day of the hearings, when South Africa made its case, only to carry parts of Israel's defense the following day. Some British interviewers had already been pushing back against Israeli talking points. Once the hearings wrapped up, armed with the evidence South Africa had just dropped on the ICJ, they appeared to turn the screws even tighter on Israeli officials. I think it is tragic and appalling that South Africa has decided to play advocate for the devil and serve as the legal arm of I'm Hamas. going to pause you there, if I may, Mr Levy, because almost every point I put to you or every question I ask you, you respond 
with an answer that is not relevant to the question. Unaccustomed to tough questions from Western news outlets, some of the exchanges left this Israeli spin doctor squirming. Don't say you're going off the Hamas. This is not you kill point. civilians. This is what... Krishnan, I wish we... Krishnan, war is awful. It's difficult for me to comment on, you know, exactly what kind of motivates journalists to ask the questions that they ask. But the ICJ case is providing foundation for journalists to consider that the allegations that Israel is committing very serious violations of international law have more credibility now that a, a third state, South Africa, has decided to bring this case. The ICJ's judges are expected to issue their ruling by early February, if not sooner. The American position on this case has not changed, at least publicly, as its officials keep saying. The submission against Israel to the International Court of Justice distracts the world. And moreover, the charge of genocide is meritless. Reports like this one, however, quoting US officials, say otherwise, that President Biden is running out of patience for President Netanyahu. Polls indicate that Biden's backing of Israel's war on Gaza in an election year will cost him votes, particularly among young Americans. As one former Israeli political advisor has suggested, if Joe Biden is looking for a way out of this, the ICJ case could provide him with one. Could this be the ladder that helps America walk itself to a different position where we finally shift towards a ceasefire. The smart thing for a US administration, if it wants to see an end to this, would be to say, we didn't go to the ICJ, but we have to respect the seriousness of these hearings, assuming there is some kind of finding that is problematic for Israel's current campaign, that that offers us a way forward. So it could play that role. If the court orders provisional measures, it will mean that there is at least a plausible case that Israel is carrying out genocidal acts in Gaza. And one would hope that journalists would reflect that fact in their reporting, that it might shift the debate to an extent on Israel's military operation in Gaza and lend more credence, really, to the notion that Israel's committing genocide. These formal accusations of genocide at the highest court on the globe may well turn out to be a turning point. A very long overdue turning point, but a turning point nonetheless. This conflict has cost more journalists their lives than any other conflict. Can you imagine if the same number of Ukrainian or British journalists have been killed, or Israeli journalists killed by Palestinians, nuclear weapons would have been deployed against the Gaza Strip. As the saying goes, Palestinians are indeed children of a lesser God. The pro-Israel lobby has global reach, as employees at Australia's public broadcaster ABC might tell you, after the firing of a journalist there for sharing a story about Gaza on social media. Minakshi Ravi is here with more. Richard, a month ago, a host at ABC's Sydney Morning Radio program, Australian Lebanese journalist Antoinette Latouf, was sacked. The official reason? Latouf had reposted a Human Rights Watch report stating Israel was using starvation as a weapon of war. 
However, an investigation by the Sydney Morning Herald alleges she was let go because of something else entirely, something quite nefarious. The paper obtained dozens of leaked messages from a WhatsApp group called Lawyers for Israel, whose members wrote to ABC calling for Latouf to be sacked and threatening legal action if she wasn't. Screenshots from the group show a coordinated letter-writing campaign. In an email sent to all staff at ABC, Managing Director David Anderson rejected any claim that it was influenced by any external pressure, whether it be an advocacy or lobby group, a political party or a commercial entity. Latouf called her dismissal unlawful and took ABC to court. Her lawyer tweeted that the sacking was based on both political opinion and race. The case, which looked at whether the broadcasting company acted under the influence of external lobbying, failed to be settled at a legal hearing this past Thursday. The matter didn't resolve today, um, but the fight continues and I'm willing and prepared to fight for as long as it takes. This is such an important case because it's not just about me, it's about free speech. Latouf's case is not the first of its kind. Many journalists, particularly in the Anglosphere, have lost their jobs or been suspended since October 7th for their views on the Gaza war. Thanks, Mina. Social media, the ability of people to broadcast their own stories, has shown its importance once again during Israel's war on Gaza. But online platforms can also be hotspots for fake news. One country that stresses the importance of training young people to distinguish fact from fiction is Finland. The Finns got a head start on this. For more than half a century, they had to contend with Soviet propaganda coming over their eastern border. These days, the misinformation comes from all directions and is mostly digital. So the Finnish government has woven courses on media literacy into its school curriculums to equip Finns with the tools to assess the accuracy of the information they see. Teachers are on the front lines of this fight for truth, and the national broadcaster also has its part to play. The Listening Post's Flo Phillips now on a societal-wide educational drive that offers a model for educators, broadcasters, and countries around the world. A grinning purple cat. <laughs> a bouncing yellow sun. A classic combination for any animators out to attract the attention of small children. But this video, produced by Finland's National Audiovisual Institute, has an important message about the media these kids are consuming. It's been designed to help pre-primary school children work out what's real and what's not, and what can be done if they're left scared or confused by what they're seeing. That's because in Finland, no one is too young to start thinking about the reliability of the information they encounter. The approach that we are promoting is that, that you have to start uh, with very young children uh, before the school age. And, and you start with basic elements of, of media and understanding of what media is about. And then you build the understanding that there's always someone behind each picture and each story. And the, the, the older the children get, the deeper you go into these different parts of media and, and content creation and production. Media literacy is not one single subject. It's taught across all subjects. For example, in Finnish language and literature, we teach the basic skills. We talk about fake news, source analysis, media criticism. Then in maths, we might focus on statistics and algorithms. In art classes, students learn about images, how photos are edited. 
In history class, we discussed an air raid that took place during the Second World War and thought about how the same incident could be taught differently depending which side the country had fought on. It's very important that we don't just teach the subject matter, but also the analytical skills, who produced it and for what purpose. Spotting fake news is a very real part of daily education here in Finland. Sometimes it's subtly woven into everyday subjects. Sometimes it's more specific. We're about to sit in on a class where 14-year-olds are learning all about mis, dis and malinformation, questioning and challenging claims like the moon is made of cheese. Me naurettiin tosi paljon näille nimille. Täällä oli tutkija Mozzarella, Parmesan, professori Camembert, Brie. The students are very good at recognizing fake news. For example, when news about the war in Ukraine started appearing online, Finns in general have a very high standard of media literacy. We're not easily fooled. That's in part because media literacy is not a new concept for Finns. It's been part of the culture for more than a century, ever since the Nordic nation first gained independence from Russia in 1917. Almost a hundred years on, having walled itself off from years of Soviet propaganda, the fight against fake news is still being fought, first in the aftermath of Russia's 2014 annexation of Crimea, and more recently with Putin's invasion of Ukraine, in particular concerns about narratives challenging Finland's ambition to join NATO. And media literacy is now mandatory, a core component of the national curriculum, teaching Finnish students to form a front line of defence against any disinformation, including content infiltrating the 830-mile-long border the two countries still share. During the period of Finlandization in the Cold War, the Finnish media were very cautious about their neighbour, the Soviet Union, people always had to ask themselves whether the news was really true. Of course, there have been changes since. Russia has taken on an increasingly aggressive global role. We're also spending an increasingly significant part of our lives on social media. So teaching media literacy and criticism in schools is so important. We were one of the first countries in in EU, uh, probably in the world, to actually have a specific policy for media literacy. There's no one single right way to promote media literacy. There are multiple ways and, and different organizations can do the work from their own viewpoints. That way we feel that we can reach much more people than, than we would be able to do if it was all done only by us, uh, a governmental office uh, producing only only materials by the government and, and telling like the official story. There's no escaping the multifaceted media education effort underway. So many different organizations are developing and delivering learning programs from schools, universities and libraries to government departments and NGOs. 
and one of the biggest players is the public broadcaster Wiley. Yle Uutisluokka on osa Ylen mediakasvatustyötä. Haluamme parantaa nuorten medialukutaitoa. Mary Vesanumi is one of Wiley's media producers. She works on a number of the news network's teaching tools, including a project called News Class. We have 14 different news mentors working from around Finland. They go and meet the class, they tell them who they are, and then they go through like how news come about, like what you see on the TV, how does that happen? And once you go through the whole process, they, they actually start thinking about these publication me methods, and that is really the way fake news can be detected. Then, of course, Ule does a lot of other things. We have Wiley Learning, which does different types of video on media education, like the lie detector. Fake kuvina, memeina, editoituina videoina. The deepfake videos we produced have been really popular and the reason why we put them out was that artificial intelligence is coming at a speed where we need to kind of let people know that it exists and how it works. We also offer uh, different types of games that you can immerse yourself into and and think of uh, what it would be like to be, for instance, a troll. Trolls, foxes, dogs. There's a whole menagerie of characters being deployed by game designers and developers to draw kids in. It's the more entertaining side of the educational toolkit, but that doesn't mean it's all just fun and games. Troll Factory is where you put yourself in the position of a troll and deliberately create as much harmful material as possible for online distribution. It's quite an unpleasant game, but students experience the harm of spreading misinformation, which is perhaps a good thing for them. Wiley News Lab uh, produced Troll Factory uh, when Russian trolls were really on the news here in, in Finland. It really makes you think, like, I do not want to be the lord of, of lies, which is the end result. When you think of kids who are gamers, if for some reason we manage to incorporate one media education game into this set of, of gaming, it's only a bonus. Playing to students' strengths, the media literacy program is a point of pride, one of the many international indexes where this small Nordic nation consistently comes out on top. Having spent the last century schooling its citizens to fend off fake news, Finland is shifting its focus, guarding against new trends, technologies and platforms to ensure that every pupil is prepared to fight false information, whatever form it might take. In closing, more than 100 days into the war on Gaza, with nearly 120 journalists killed, we are reminded of the devastating cost to our colleagues on the ground. Wael Dakhdu has been described as a mountain of journalism. 
Based in Gaza for Al Jazeera Arabic, he has kept on reporting even after he lost his wife, son, daughter and a grandson to an Israeli strike in October. Even after he helped lay to rest his colleague, cameraman Samar Abu Dhaka, after an Israeli attack in December that also left Dakhdu wounded. And even after the killing of his eldest son and fellow journalist Hamza in the early days of 2024. Wael Dakhdu has now left Gaza to get the medical attention his wounds require. But he says he'll be back. We just wanted to close by acknowledging the many journalists still on the ground, still bringing you the news on this story under the most dangerous circumstances imaginable. We'll see you next time here at The Listening Post.